My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the leaders of our church here. And it is a real privilege for me to preach God's word to you. I'm glad to be here, but I must first confess that I don't deserve to stand here and preach. More often than I usually like to admit, I'm pretty scared of what people are going to think of me. I tend to have a chronic struggle with overeating when I'm under stress. I get angry and withdrawn when things aren't in order the way I want my life to be. I am full of sin and weakness. I'm here, however, because Jesus Christ died for me. He stood in my place. He took my punishment. He rose from the dead, gave me all of his goodness, such that God will never accuse me of wrongdoing. He's declared me innocent of all charges. And so I now stand here and preach to you this message of forgiveness that is available to you as well. Now, I must wrestle through this tension whenever I preach God's word. This tension is that I am guilty, but I am innocent. I am insecure, but I am confident in the Lord. Our young people especially need to see this tension lived out in our lives, in our community. Otherwise, we might train them their whole lives to always put their best foot forward, to confidently pretend to be someone they are not. And many of them, as they grow, they they wrestle with deep, deep doubts and fears about who they are, who God is. They wrestle over the terrible things that they have done, over the terrible things that have been done to them. And they need to hear penetrating truth that pierces their masquerades. You see, Christians who grow up in this church and move out someday, they need more than don't lose your faith in college or watch out for the theory of evolution. Those are two good sentiments, but they need more than that. And in addition, as we reach out to the non-Christians around us, we need to have a message for them that's more than, smile, God loves you. They need a message of innocence that inspires confidence. They need a message of innocence that inspires confidence, such that their confidence might not be in themselves or in their grades or in their careers or in their relationships, but their confidence is in a lasting innocence that can never be overturned. Now, we have such a message, and I hope it inspires you as it has inspired me this morning. Please turn with me to Acts chapter 25. If you borrow one of the church Bibles, we have some 
Extras back there. Again, we're on page 878. In there, as we continue our study through this book of Acts. And we're in a place in this narrative where uh, this, this missionary, this Christian missionary named Paul, he's in a hostile, secular environment, yet he has every expectation that he will triumph. Not because of who he is, but because of who Jesus is. And so on your outlines in the bulletin, you can see uh, three parts to my message today. I really have two points I want to make, which are that Paul is innocent and Paul is confident. And then we will end with some application, seeing what this confident innocence looks like. Let me pray for us as we prepare to come into God's word. Our Father in heaven, Lord, please draw near to us and fill us with your spirit, the spirit of your wisdom and understanding that we might penetrate the mysteries of your will which you have revealed and you have made known to us. Please strengthen us, turn our eyes away from ourselves, away from our insecurities and our fears and onto the Lord Jesus whom you have sent in whom are summed up all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, the one who, by the word of his power, upholds the universe. And so help us now to see him more clearly and to be transformed, so that if any do not know him, they might meet him afresh. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this Christian missionary named Paul has been arrested, imprisoned, and put on trial. That's where we come into the story here. At the end of the book of Acts, he makes five defenses in legal situations. What we're about to read is the fourth out of those five. We've already been through three. The previous governor, the the Roman governor Felix, left him to rot in prison for two years just to make the Jews happy. But now a new governor is in place, a guy named Portius Festus. And so as I read chapter 25, we're going to see how Festus handles this case that's come to him of Paul's unjust imprisonment. Now I'm going to read the whole chapter at once. I'm going to give you some of the punchline right now to help you follow along. This chapter is saturated with clues in the narrative and evidence all pointing to the fact of Paul's innocence. This is the first point I want to make. I have found 15 such pieces of evidence in this chapter. So as I read, see how many you can find. Maybe you can jot them down or put a star next to them or underline them or something. See how many of you can find. Listen for evidence of Paul's innocence. Here we go. Acts chapter 25. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Hint, there's the first evidence. They don't think they can get a conviction, so they have to assassinate him instead. Verse 4. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me and if 
If there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I had supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish popul uh, excuse me, the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, 
I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite. <laughs> I can't keep a straight face at this part, sorry. I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. We can all say, amen, he's right about one thing, right? That would, that would not be reasonable to send someone without indicating the charges against him. So the first thing the narrator wants us to see here in this chapter is that Paul is innocent. He goes way out of his way, the way he's telling the story, the witnesses he cites, the testimony he gives. He is bringing this all together. As I mentioned earlier, I have found 15 evidences in this chapter. There could still be more that I've missed. I won't list all 15 of them for you, but we can compare lists after the service if, if you want, if you're one of those kind of people, you know, like me, who wants to get them all. But for now, let me just observe my top five that strike me the most, that are the most clear. First, look at verse 7. The Jews came and they brought many and serious charges against him, but what do we know about those charges? Charges that they could not prove. Okay, now those to whom Luke is writing this, they could go and check the court records and see. Were those charges proven? Was the, was the, the verdict rendered you know, that he was guilty? They could fact check this. But they brought serious charges that they could not prove. Second, let me point out in verse 10, Paul himself, here is the prisoner, presumably in chains, standing there, facing down the judge, and talking to the judge, he says, I'm not going to go to Jerusalem, I'm in the place where I should get a verdict. Come on, judge, why aren't you doing your job? And then he says, to the Jews, I have done no wrong, as, <coughs> as you yourself know very well. So he, he has, he has the, the cheek to, to speak to the judge this way. You know yourself, judge, that I have done nothing wrong against these people. And the judge doesn't throw him out of court. He doesn't say, well, no, we have all this evidence. Don't talk like that. Let, come on. Guilty. He, he doesn't do any of that. The third one I want to point out is at the end of verse 11, which is simply where, where Paul says, if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. So you see, Festus is, is unable, he is impotent to require Paul to relocate this trial from Caesarea, where the law court is, to Jerusalem, where the religious courts are. He has no authority to do that because there is nothing to their charges. If there's nothing to their charges, no one can send me there. And Festus is like, all right, yeah, you're right. You're right. I can't do that. And then Paul finally appeals to Caesar at the end of verse 11. 
And when we hear this, we need to think, uh, hear that word, don't hear that word appeal the way we typically think of appeal. You see, today in our day, when we talk about appeals, we're talking about someone who has received a guilty verdict who then requests a higher court to overturn that judgment. That's what an appeal is. But here, in, in the, the way the Roman system worked, it, it's using this English word appeal, but what it's talking about is not that he's received a guilty verdict that he wants to have overturned. It's that the problem is that he's received no verdict. None of the judges that he has come before have been willing to make a declaration of guilt or innocence in his case. And so he's stuck. And so he now appeals to request to go to a higher court. This was the right of every Roman citizen that they could appeal directly to Caesar when they needed justice to be done. Now, if you did that for trivial matters, there were severe consequences. Caesar doesn't want you wrecking his schedule over foolish matters. So it wasn't done very often. But he's appealing just to get justice, just to get any decision. And so all this is evidence of his innocence that Festus refuses to declare it. And therefore, uh, he, he cannot send him to Jerusalem. Paul must go to Caesar in Rome. The fourth evidence I want to point out is in verses 18 and 19. This is where Festus says straight out in verse 18, his accusers brought no charge in his case of such evils as I had supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion. You see what he's saying is, this is not a civil matter that has come before me. This is a religious debate. There's no law that's been broken. This, this is not, I do not have jurisdiction here, is what he's saying. And that's the same thing that another ruler had said in Corinth a few chapters ago. He said, Jews, deal with this yourself. This is not a matter for the courts. And the final evidence I want to point out here is in verses 26 and 27. The one that I have a hard time keeping a straight face with it, where he's like, Man, Festus says, I'm stuck. Now I'm obligated legally to send him to Caesar, but I have nothing to write. I don't know what to say about why I'm sending him. And it's just, it's kind of funny. He says, I have no charge to write against Paul. There are no charges that have stuck to this guy. So this chapter is saturated with these evidences. And though we can make an extensive list and we can get really interested by that, we must understand the point of all of this. You see, the reason all this is here so densely packed, all these evidences of his innocence, is because the narrator wants to make it abundantly clear that Paul is innocent. This point is incredibly straightforward. Paul is innocent. And at the time that this was written, the governors and the judges involved in the case were, were still around. The court's records still existed. And all that the narrator records here could go and be verified by, by his, the guy he's writing this to, the man named Theophilus that he named in chapter 1, verse 1. Now, how does this apply? We'll see in a few moments. Point number three, I want to get to the application. But here, let me only suggest 
that we need to take notice of the fact that Paul's innocence has absolutely nothing to do with any decision that has been rendered in Roman court. Because that's part of the problem, right? No decision has been rendered in Roman court yet. But the evidence all here points to his innocence, not because a Roman judge has said so. Paul's innocence must be based on something other than that. Hang on to that idea. We'll return to it in a few moments. Let me move on to point number two. Let me take a second swipe through the passage to make a second point, which is that Paul is confident. I want to observe with you uh, the contrast all throughout this text between the pomp and the power of the people in authority and the, the humble and humiliating circumstances that Paul himself is in. Okay, There's this great contrast of power and pomp. The first contrast could be labeled as a question. Who is in charge? Who is in charge? Let me, let me point out what I mean. Three times in this chapter, Festus orders Paul around. Verses 6, 17, and 23. He orders Paul around. But Paul is never freaking out. He's never breaking down. Uh, he even stands before Festus telling him the truth. Verse 10, you know very well I have done no wrong. Verse 11, he says, no one can give me up to them. You see, it's almost as though Paul's really in charge. Festus is issuing the orders, but Paul is making the decision as to what must happen. Three times we're told that Festus sits on the tribunal. It's the official word for the throne of judgment that he was sitting on. But Paul consistently is the one who renders the judicial decisions. Verse 11, if I've done anything wrong, I don't seek to escape death, but I appeal to Caesar. And that's funny. Paul says that in verse 11, but down in verse 25, when Festus is talking to King Agrippa, he tries to make the whole appeal thing sound like his idea. In 25, he says, as, as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. He's trying to sort of keep some semblance of an appearance of control here. So who's really in charge? It sure looks like Paul. Let me point out a second contrast, which is who needs the most fanfare? Who needs, who needs to be made much of in this chapter? Verse 23, we're told that Agrippa comes with great pomp, along with Bernice, his wife, and they come with the, the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. You can picture bugles fanfaring and, and banners hanging and confetti being thrown. You, know, you can just picture the scene as, as they're coming in here. And in verse 24, Festus speaks to the crowd and he quiets everybody and he's got this great show of power and being in control. That's how they're all described. But how is Paul described? In verses 14 and 27, two times, he's simply called the prisoner. In 16, he's called the accused. And in verse 23, we're told that Agrippa and all these others came with great pomp, but right at the end of that same verse, verse 23, at the command of Festus, Paul was simply brought in. 
So the words and the adjectives and the, the, the description being made here is going really big, really big for these folks. And then really small, almost nothing. He, Paul, he's just, just brought in the prisoner, the accused. Throughout this chapter, Caesar is mentioned 11 times. Either his name or his title, Caesar, or, or the title emperor, or even the city Caesarea, which was named after him in his honor. Three times Agrippa is called king. Even though he's just a governor like Felix, they gave him an honorary title, king. He was a governor of the next region over. So when Festus and Agrippa get together, it's almost like picture the governors of Pennsylvania and New Jersey meeting together to just help each other out, to, to give advice. So, you know, who needs the most fanfare here? It is amazing how much pomp and fanfare people require when they know they have no real influence. They are losing control. And they need some way to mask their insecurity behind a veil of extravagance. Yet even so, Paul, by contrast, is much more on his toes, at the top of his game. He, despite his status as a prisoner, he is the one making declarations and issuing orders. And therefore, he's in this dilemma. He knows that, that, that he's caught. If I'm held and I stay here and we keep doing what we're doing, I get nowhere. If I get sent to Jerusalem, I get killed. He knows the Jews have been trying to assassinate him for over two years at this point. And so he knows, I must go to Rome. In fact, that's what Jesus told me. He came and said, I would be going to Rome to bear witness to him. And so he acts accordingly with confidence. And he appeals to Caesar and he gets this thing done. But we need to take close note of the narrative climax here that shows us the source of Paul's confidence. You see, the tension all throughout is building up it's building up even to Paul's appeal in verse 11, Festus's agreement to let it go. But then, you know, Festus wants to get this second opinion from Agrippa and it keeps building and building until we get up to particularly verses 18 and 19. Because here is where the narrator is tipping his hand. He's showing us, remember before I said Paul's innocence has nothing to do with a verdict in a Roman court. What does it have to do with? He tips his hand here in verse 19 when Festus says, they didn't bring the charges I expected. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. You see, this here is what Festus can see as the root of Paul's confidence. Paul knows that Jesus has died, but he is now alive. And because of that, Paul knows that it doesn't matter what happens in this court or any other court, because he knows that in the highest court, the only one that really matters when all is said and done, he has already been declared innocent. He's been declared righteous by the death of Jesus, and it was proven and confirmed when God raised him from the dead. And so he asserts, Jesus is alive, 
I am innocent. You can't do anything to me. So I told you earlier that that Paul's innocence is rooted in something other than any verdict in a Roman court. You see how this works now. Paul is confident precisely because he is innocent. And he is innocent not because of what the Jews or the Romans say, but he is innocent because the Jesus who died is now alive. This means, as we've seen so many times already in the book of Acts, this narrative has been building. This means that his sins are forgiven, that he is a son of God, and this means that he now serves the king who reigns over all the other kings. And the judge who judges all the other judges has declared Paul to be innocent of all charges, not just of defiling the temple, but innocent of murdering Christians and blaspheming God and all the other things he used to do. The verdict has been rendered and no human court can ever overturn this verdict. This verdict of innocence that has already been declared in God's heavenly courtroom is a source of tremendous confidence for Paul. Paul is innocent, and that makes Paul confident. How does all of this apply? This is my third point. What does confident innocence look like? You see, Paul's hope is that strength is really in weakness. You see, Christ was dead, but he's now alive. Therefore, Paul can be in chains, but he now exudes confidence telling the most powerful and pompous judges what decisions they must render. We all desperately need to hear this message. This message, more than anything else, harnesses the power for lasting change. This message alone will inspire lasting and unshakable confidence before God and before people. You see, we must start with this message in verse 19. Jesus died, but he is now alive. We start there because that then means that those who believe are innocent of all charges, now and forever. And then we can tackle whatever matters we may struggle with of counterfeit confidence, all the pomp and majesty we want to have an appearance of in our lives. And we can give people something way better to stand on. Two questions will help us to understand how this message of innocence can inspire your confidence. They're printed at the bottom of your outlines so you can discuss them later in small groups. Where do you look for confidence and how do you reckon innocence? These questions are critical. Let me walk them through a bit. First, where do you look for confidence? You see, Paul draws his confidence from his divine innocence. But we try so many other things, don't we? I'm feeling insecure. I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling nervous. Where am I going to go to get my security back to get my confidence? We sometimes look for confidence 
from our performance of whatever it might be. My grades. Good grades will make me confident. Career advancement. Success in my job. My personal devotions, as long as I stick to them every day, or if I attend church, I can be confident. Sometimes we look to our performance. Sometimes we look to acceptance of others to give us confidence. We start believing what other people have been saying about us. And so if, that's, if what they're saying is not good, we get shaky, we lose our confidence, everything gets all out of whack. But if they start saying good things, then okay, good, 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 all's right with the world again. Sometimes maybe we look to our appearance to give us confidence. Maybe you look to your physique or to your beauty or maybe even sometimes to your lack of such things and you wear that as there's my confidence. This is the thing I'm looking to. Maybe sometimes we look to control to be a source of confidence. You know, getting other people to do what you expect them to do, like your children, getting them to obey, getting your spouse to love or respect you, getting your roommate to, you know, stop leaving dishes in the sink or, or getting your employees to, to work well and, and, and output the things you need. And we look to con- once we can control people and they start doing what we expect, then we get our confidence back. For me, I, I, I really struggle i tend to find my confidence by feeling in control of my world my tasks especially my schedule i like feeling caught up and on top of my world i get home at the end of each day and aaron asks me how was it i usually give her one of two answers either i got a lot done i did what i set out to do today or i didn't get i didn't get much done i didn't get to do what i planned to do today and that's the difference for me often between a good day and a bad day I, can, I get shaken up by these things. Now, I, I coach my daughter's baseball team, and so in coaching, I'm dealing constantly with matters of confidence. Most of the kids have nothing to find their confidence in beyond their own performance. Did I field that grounder right and make the play? Did I make contact and hit the ball? Can I throw pitches into the strike zone? And when their performance fails, their confidence fails but I love trying to instill a deeper confidence in my own daughter and in any other player or coach on my team with ears to hear. Have that confidence that I am already innocent and approved before God because of Jesus Christ. It's okay if I go out there and I mess up a play. There's always going to be another chance. It's okay if some of the other players are disappointed in me. It's okay if I feel embarrassed or ashamed. I can get out there and try it again because nothing can threaten the way God thinks of me because of the risen Lord Jesus. There it is for baseball. Apply it to whatever area of your life it might be. Your source of confidence is exposed when things get tough. Where do you turn? And in particular... Let me go to the second question. Do you turn to your innocence? I want you to find confidence through innocence. But it's really critical that we understand how do we reckon innocence? How do you calculate innocence? How do you decide or know for sure whether you are actually innocent? Because if you seek your your means of innocence or your your 
your mechanism for approving innocence in the wrong place, then you will never really find innocence. Paul's innocence is rooted in verse 19, in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because of that, he's been acquitted in the highest court. And no one can challenge this innocence. Not the Jews, not Festus, not Agrippa, and not Caesar. You see, there's a, a common mistaken belief out there about Christianity. That, that people say and believe that Christianity is all about being a good person. That's mistaken because Christianity really is about Jesus, the only good person. Christianity says you could not do what God requires of you, but Jesus could and he did. His death sealed it, and his resurrection validated it once and for all. Therefore, you can't rely on anything else that you look for to declare you innocent. You can't rely on doing what your spouse wants you to do and getting that declaration. You can't rely on your parents to approve of your choices. The older you grow, that gets hard. You can't rest on your good behavior to make you innocent, or your church attendance, or your clean criminal record. None of these things will make you innocent. But you can rely on Jesus, whose death and resurrection makes you innocent. Now, some of you here today probably don't yet know Jesus. Maybe you even think you do, but if you're not, your confidence isn't rooted in the innocence that comes from his death and resurrection, you might not actually know him. Or maybe you know that you don't know him. You've, you've found your identity elsewhere, or you're still looking for innocence elsewhere. And my question for you to consider, please, is this. Is it working? Is it working? Can the source of your identity, where you are looking for innocence, can that thing truly make you innocent? Will it ever be enough to make you right with God? Now, many of you do know Jesus, but you still hear accusations of guilt all the time. Maybe your children say, you don't love me. If you did, you would have let me do that thing I wanted to do. Maybe your spouse says, you always ignore me. Maybe your parents say, you should be a harder worker like us. Maybe your fellow student or colleague says, you're an idiot and a bigot. If you're a Christian, a loving God would never send people to hell. And you see, we hear these accusations of guilt all the time. You are this. You don't do this enough. You, this and this. And then you lose confidence and you grow insecure. But friends, we only lose our confidence if we forget our true innocence. And your true innocence is so final 
and so complete that nothing on earth can appeal it or overturn it. If God raised Jesus from the dead to prove it, do you think other people can bring that into question? What are they going to do? Kill Jesus again? Let them try. Death has no, nothing against us. Do you think even your own sin or suffering can screw up that innocence that is assuredly yours because Jesus, the risen Jesus, is alive and sitting at God's right hand? Nothing can mess that up. We only lose our confidence when we forget that innocence. So friends, reckon innocence. Look for your innocence in the right place. And let that inspire your confidence as we live life in a world that seeks to deny the innocence that is available. In conclusion, Paul is innocent. And so are you, if you are in Jesus. Paul is confident, and you can be too. If you are in Jesus. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And who is able to present you blameless. Before the presence of his glory. With great joy. To the only God our savior. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we bow before you. We have no hope other than the Lord Jesus who died and rose on our behalf that we might be forever innocent before you. Lord, please remind us of these things every day, every moment, and inspire us with your confidence that we may speak on your behalf, we may do the right thing, we may call others to do the right thing, and help us to rest in you and to return to you every moment. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.